Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and Hermione's Secret. Today we will be discussing the reveal of the time-turner, why Dumbledore somehow knows everything, and how time travel works in this series compared to other representations in entertainment. So we have a special guest on our program today. I'd like to welcome our old friend Corey, who back for this chapter. Hi, Corey. Hi, guys. So happy Hi, to Corey. be here. You are our first return guest, so we're very excited. I'm honored. And I remember you mentioning that... Um, Prisoner of Azkaban was your favorite book, and you just told us before we started that this is your all-time favorite chapter. So tell us a little bit about why this is your favorite book and and favorite chapter in particular. Yeah, I probably have read this book the most out of the seven. Uh, I just feel like it's the turning point where the first two books are kind of, it's a nice story. You get that like hero story. But there's not that much depth. They kind of scrape the surface. You know, there might be something more. And as soon as we get into this book, we realize that it's so much bigger than what what you've seen already in the first two books. And you start to learn a little bit more about these characters. You start bringing in people from the past. It gets darker. Um, So I just think it's a real turning point for the series. Yeah, definitely. I think so, too. And I I think that this is when we reread this chapter, I was thinking that this is also one of my definitely one of my favorite chapters in the series. Um, And it's one of the most memorable for sure. Yeah, it definitely is. I I just feel like it's we start to see this different bit of magic that we're not sure if that's legal or we don't really know anything about it. It's just kind of like introduced to us and and sprung on us and we're like okay this is it I guess you can time travel and there's so many questions that it brings up um right and I think keeping that in your mind as you go through the rest of the series well why couldn't we just like use a time turner in this moment Mm -hmm. and and so I think there's just a lot a lot packed in this chapter and I I told you guys this before too but I think the movie also does a really good job bringing this chapter to life um because reading it it's a complete Mm -hmm. page turner Um, But I think watching it, too, it's just so visually exciting. Yeah. And it, you know, what you were just saying kind of led me to a a realization, which is that this book is full of Harry receiving really, really powerful magical artifacts that then become problems later on because they make him too powerful. Like the Marauder's Map Mm. next year in Goblet of Fire, the Marauder's Map would have ruined the entire story. So early on, right. it gets removed from Harry's uh, control so that he can't use it. Because otherwise, he would have realized that Moody was actually Bartimius Crouch Jr. Right. Um, or the Time Turner, because it's such a powerful object, as you were saying, like, why can't you just go back in time and, and change things? We'll get to that, actually, by the way. There's a reason why you can't. But um, just to prevent people from even, like, making the argument that you could, in the fifth book, Rowling goes and destroys all the time turners in the Ministry of Magic. So there's no possible way anybody could argue, well, they should have gone back in time and fixed this or that or the other thing. And the Firebolt, even, I think, you know, we could consider that a really powerful artifact, too. It doesn't, like, um, ruin Rowling's plans for any particular book, but it does come in handy a lot of the time. So it's kind of like these three really powerful things that he gets all of them in this book. Definitely. Yeah, and it's a very risky, like a risky invention um, 
the time the, to the time turner, which I yeah. think is why she probably ends up destroying them. Um, because it's it's risky for it for them in the book, but it's also risky as the author to introduce that. And I think she kind of wanted to backtrack on it maybe a little bit later. I also find it we may I may be jumping ahead, but I do find it a little crazy that what they're like fifteen right now that mm-hmm. all the issues 13. that thirteen are they thirteen? Oh my god, oh, yeah, they're yeah, they're thirteen. <laughs> they're thirteen and they have so much trouble talking to the minister of magic as it is. And I find it so hard to believe that McGonagall was able to convince them that a 13 year old could have such a powerful magical device. That's the and one thing that like, I've never good reason. <laughs> Right. So that she can kill seem... herself and take all these classes at the age yes. of 13. <laughs> it's yeah, like, why? It's like you would think that there would be even another magical, um, like some sort of thing where it's you can retain information really quickly, like something else that would help Hermione like read the extra books or something, so that she wouldn't have to physically be in the classes. Right. I just if think they it's were a lot, wanting her to do it, a lot it to trust a thirteen-year-old with. I think both Harry's sure. getting a lot, and then she's getting a lot too. Right. Right. That's true. Well, before we get any deeper into our discussion, let's just briefly. I know this is a, a big chapter, but let's try to keep our synopsis concise as much as we can. So we open with Harry sort of waking up, slowly regaining consciousness, and he overhears Snape and Fudge discussing the recent events, particularly that Sirius was captured, Lupin is on the run, um, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione are in serious trouble, although mostly unharmed. Ron is still unconscious, but Harry and Hermione seem okay. Harry and Hermione are awake and they tell their story to Fudge, the minister, but he doesn't believe them because he's already heard a more convincing or what he thinks is a realistic version from Snape. So then Dumbledore arrives and says that he believes Harry and Hermione asked to talk to them alone, but then tells them that even though he believes them, it's not enough to help vindicate Sirius. And so they need more time to save him. Dumbledore then gives them instructions on where Sirius is being kept tells them they can save more than one life, and then Hermione grabs Harry by the shoulder and turns her hourglass necklace over three times. They disappear. They then reappear in the entrance hall, but it's three hours earlier. They hide in a closet while Hermione explains that they've just time-traveled back three hours and that McGonagall had given her the time-turner in order for her to be able to go to all the classes she wanted. Then Harry realizes that they also need to save Buckbeak in order to help save Sirius. So they hide out in the forest, and they then fly Buckbeak up to Sirius's prison room so that he can escape. Hermione insists the whole time that they're traveling that they have to remain completely unseen, um, especially by themselves. They go and wait by Hagrid's hut until the Ministry folks see Buckbeak tethered outside. Harry gets Buckbeak to come with them and quickly gets him into the forest where they hide. And then once this has happened, the Ministry officials, they realize that Buckbeak has escaped. And then Dumbledore does successfully distract them, allowing Harry and Hermione and Buckbeak to escape without being seen. They go near the Whomping Willow and they witness the fight between Sirius and Ron in third person. And then as they wait for everybody to reemerge from the tree, Harry recounts his perspective of the fight with the Dementors. He thinks that he saw his father conjure the Patronus that saved them. 
Harry then realizes that Lupin, in his werewolf form, is going to run right towards them, and so they quickly leave the forest and go into Hagrid's hut, which is empty. Then Harry decides to be a little risky and goes to the lake in order to monitor the timing of the events, but he really goes there because he wants to see if it was his father who conjured the Patronus. He goes to the spot where he saw him appear, but then nobody comes. In that moment, Harry realizes what he truly saw, and then in a burst of confidence, he summons a true Patronus, which causes all the Dementors to scatter. He sees the Patronus's form up close and realizes that it's a stag, the animal form of his father, Prongs. Hermione arrives and meets him, and Harry explains that he knew that he could cast the Patronus because he'd already seen himself do it. So then the two of them climb on to Buckbeak's back. They fly up to the tower where Sirius is being held. They break open the window, get Sirius out of there, and fly all the way up to the West Tower. Sirius thanks them over and over. Harry insists that he has to leave right away. Um, Black flies off into the night and escapes, but not until after telling Harry that they'll see him again and that Harry is truly James's son. So one thing that I was really thinking about while rereading this chapter um, this time is Harry's perspective throughout the whole time. So at first, just the complete frustration of not being able to express themselves to Fudge um, and to be able to convince them because they have no evidence at that point, which Dumbledore says, that's already frustrating enough. And so then once they're back in time, it feels like, well, we should just be able to fix everything, but they can only fix those specific things of saving Buckbeak and Sirius, and they can't save Pettigrew, or they can't get Pettigrew, they can't stop Lupin from transforming, like, they can't make the night better in general. They can make it slightly better at the end, but they can't go back and do this. And it does seem really frustrating in retrospect to think about, especially if you've just learned that time travel exists, that you can't go back and, you know, fix what's gone wrong this whole time. And that's why it's really important that Hermione's with him, right? The voice of re- reason and logic, or else, I mean, Harry probably would have been seen by himself and attacked himself, and a, nothing would have mm-hmm. been fixed. Yeah. yeah. So Hermione's role in this chapter is very much like voice of the author. Hermione is there to keep Harry from breaking the rules of the literary device that Rowling has employed here. And we will talk about that a little bit later on in our discussion, I think, because like, The way that Rowling wrote time travel, as we've displayed in this chapter, is very specific and it's very free of paradoxes because of how specific and limited it is. And so Hermione's saying, like, it's of utmost importance that no one sees you. You cannot change anything that happened. You cannot do anything um, that would have affected the way that things occurred because they already happened. Um, That keeps Harry from being able to influence the events and it keeps him from encountering paradoxes that way because if he had for example gone and got Pettigrew um then the the rest of the events of the chapter wouldn't have happened but we know that they did because we saw them so if they had happened differently then it creates a paradox where there was no reason for them to time travel so they didn't time travel so then Pettigrew escaped so then they had to time travel so then they got Pettigrew so then they didn't have a reason to time travel and it just goes on forever <laughs> Well, yeah, I was thinking also, like, what, I mean, you were, you were saying, Corey, which I think is true, that Harry probably would have attacked himself in that moment, or, like, um, his past self would have attacked his future self, whatever, but what would have happened in terms of, like, the consequence of events if, if Harry had, for example, like, seen Scabbers, like, 
when they were saying we're not going to be able to find a rat in the dark, you know, what if Harry had grabbed Pettigrew, like, the rat, but nobody had seen him? Um, like, so he didn't see himself, nobody in, from the past saw him, but he took Scabbers. Like, what do we think that would have happened? Like, would that have changed things? Or could would something have just blocked that because we know that that didn't happen, like you're saying? Yeah. Um, I think there are, like, physical laws that prevent people from interfering in in past timelines when they time travel, like... There's a reason that Hermione couldn't go back and reattend her cheering charms lesson after she missed it and people noticed that she missed it. Um, and it's that, she, like, it already happened and she wasn't there. So she can't go back in time and then attend it. Um, it's like when you, when you time travel, you're, you're limited by the things that have actually occurred already. You can't just go and, and make new things happen. It doesn't work like that. And the consequence of that is actually that free will doesn't exist for a time traveler, which that is a principle called the Nabokov self-consistency principle, which was developed in the 1980s. It was a way to explain how you could have time travel without paradoxes. And the way that they were able to do that was to basically say, okay, well, if you don't have free will, then there's none of, there's none of these problems would happen. There's no like way that you could create a causality loop or prevent yourself from going back in time in the first place. If you just limit the free will of the time traveler, then all of their actions are deterministic and they can, they can only do what was already done, which is actually how it works in Harry Potter. So, you know, that, that does kind of make sense, but it sacrifices the um, ability of our protagonist to actually influence events. So in order to make it interesting, I think Rowling did this very clever thing of having Harry observe himself doing the Patronus. And that way he does get to influence the events, but only because he already knows that it happened. So it can get kind of complicated, I guess, but really the point is, like, this is a very self-consistent way of uh, demonstrating time travel in the series, and it doesn't run into any paradoxes. But as I said, like, Hermione is there not to keep Harry from, like, screwing things up, but to kind of be the voice of the author and say, like, hey, these are the rules of time travel. You can't actually break these rules. It's not possible. You can't go and find Scabbers and, and bring him back. Because that didn't happen. Like, you can't go and get the invisibility cloak from under the tree because we already saw Snape wear it into the cabin. So that already happened. You can't change that. Um, and she doesn't say those words, but that is what the implication of those things are. It's like, you must not be seen means you can't change anything. Right. So then my question is this. Then how does Dumbledore know that all of this is happening? So because that's a clear great that question. He does. He's distracting yeah. these people the way he talks right. about it. How, how Mike? I don't know the answer. How how does he know? This I don't know so either. Cool. Yeah, I don't I, know either. We were thinking about this a lot when we read the chapter. So I have no idea. So I sort of part of me, Corey, thinks that like he can't have known because how would he even know that? The only thing that we know is that he does know that Hermione has the time turner. Like he and the McGonagall are the only people that know that. And so, in theory, he either. So I think he either sees Harry and Hermione in the woods and maybe also sees Harry and Hermione leaving Hagrid's hut and knows that they must have time traveled or he just sees one of them and because of how the events unfolded assumes in the that in the moment that they have but it doesn't really make sense it seems like he would have had some other type of perception about it well, there's this great scene, and, and this is in the film, too, as you were saying, Corey. It's this great 
kind of comedic scene where Dumbledore in Hagrid's hut keeps distracting the ministry officials over and over by saying like, oh, well, we need you to sign too, McNair. And oh, would you look over there? It's such a pretty sunset off in the distance. Um, and it's it's like this very not so subtle, um, almost like a magician's trick to get the audience to look somewhere else while Harry and, and Buckbeak run off into the woods. Just gives them like a few extra seconds to get that done. Um, but as you we were saying, yeah, it's almost as if he knew that he needed to distract them for a few seconds so that somebody could go and steal Buckbeak away. I think by the time they look out the window and he sees that Buckbeak is not there, at that point, he must have realized that they had time traveled. But he might even know before that, as you were saying, if he had seen them in the forest or something. Right. Or the only other thought that I have is that he saw them leaving the castle like the first time through. Yeah. Perhaps. Mm. Or he knows they're going there. And this is not magical at all. He just knows what they're like and that these three might try and stay under the invisibility cloak and save Buckbeak. Like maybe it's just that logical. And so he, in the present moment, he is trying to distract everyone because he's hoping that maybe the three of them are there to just save, save him. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't, that might be like the most logical one. And then later once he, finds out what happened and finds out that they think that Buckbeak has been killed and he knows that he that he hasn't. Oh. Then maybe he's like, oh, you do it. Yeah. This happened because right. he he saw that Buckbeak was not there. And but he must they have assumed that, that they were the ones responsible for it. So when they're in the hospital wing and they're like talking about what happened and everything, he's like, oh, so they don't know that they've rescued Buckbeak yet. But I know that they did. So that must mean that they went back in time. So then he realizes, I need to make sure that they go back in time so that that all happens consistently. And do you remember what he hurts. says to them? He <laughs> yeah, says, I know. <laughs> he, says, he says to them, he says to them uh, something like, if, if, you're, if you do this right, more than one innocent life could be saved tonight. What he means is, you might save Sirius. They think he means you might save Buckbeak. But he knows that they already saved Buckbeak because he watched that happen. Mm-hmm. So he's actually saying... I know you saved Buckbeak. Maybe you can save Sirius, too. So, like, at this point, even though, I guess, my brain is hurting because I'm thinking now, like, this it was always them that saved Buckbeak. But at this point, it's like, he knows Buckbeak is saved. Like, Buckbeak was not killed, but Sirius is still about to be killed. And so he's thinking that that's already done. Mm -hmm. And Sirius, if we do nothing now... Buckbeak, Buckbeak will be saved, but Sirius won't be, which doesn't really make sense because no, they no, no, always because of the way that this works, they always went back in time, right? And they always saved Buckbeak. So Dumbledore was like, "I have to make sure that they go back in time now, because that happened." Yeah. It's- so there's because because there's no free will, <laughs> right? This is all like really confusing. But you're not in control of your actions once time travel is involved. Dumbledore's like, "I have to make sure that they time travel." Because that that already happened. I have to keep the self-consistency going. But classic Dumbledore, can't he just say, save Buckbeak? I mean, does he have to be so... So annoying. I mean, they are 13. Why can't they just say, okay, this is what you have to do. Save Buckbeak and save Sirius. The end. (laughs) I mean, why doesn't he tell them, or why doesn't he tell them specifically what to do? Because... He he knows that they do it, but he also knows that they don't know yet how they do it. And when, um, I mean, we want to talk more about Hermione, but 
when Hermione gets, when they get back in time, Hermione's like, I don't know what Dumbledore wants us to do. She just straight up says that. It's and, a great character moment for her, though, because usually she's the person that has the plan all the time. Right. And so I feel like Dumbledore, it's it's not like Hermione, Hermione only figured out that they had to go back in time, but she didn't know. And so it takes, they figure it out. But, you know, Dumbledore should have said, okay, here's what you do. Like, you get Buckbeak into the forest, and then you wait until this time, and then you fly up to the tower. Like, he just was very vague and weird about it, which but is But he always Dumbledore. is, so... Yeah, he is. He always is. <laughs> what do you Man expect? of secrets. <laughs> There's that great line, too, and it's in the film as well, where um, they're, like, starting to go look for Buckbeak, and they're like, oh, maybe we should, like, split up and, like, some people go into the forest and look for him. And Dumbledore's like, do you really think someone would have led him away on foot? Search the skies, if you will. And then he's like, I'm gonna have a drink. Who wants to join me? <laughs> yeah. So he's like, he totally knows large, what happened. Or a cup of tea or a large brandy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It does give Hermione, as we said, though, a great character moment, I think, um, because she lets Harry take the lead a little bit. She's the expert on, like, how this works, right? Even if she doesn't know, like, the intricacies of time travel philosophically, she knows what the rules are. She knows what to avoid. But Harry is like, in his element here, he gets to take charge. There's, like, chaos, and he needs to be the person that, like, comes up with a solution. And he realizes, and we even commented on it when we were reading it, like, what a what a bolt of lightning realization. He's just like, I got it. We're supposed to go rescue Buckbeak and then fly Buckbeak up to the tower, and then we'll save Sirius. And we were kind of like, wait, how did you realize all of that in, like, two seconds? But Sometimes it's pretty Harry impressive. surprises you, you know? Yeah. It's true. <laughs> Definitely. He has, he has his moments. But um, speaking of Hermione's just like character in this, we've talked throughout this whole um, this whole book about you know what the amount of strain that Hermione's under and what she's experiencing and kind of what the her friends think is going on versus what's actually going on. And so we now have the explanation, which, as we mentioned, is kind of insane to think about how that came to be because why would they let her do that? But we now know that she's has been under so much stress. She's been time traveling. Um, she hasn't been sleeping enough. She hasn't been sleeping. She's been like missing meals, missing things, and now she has to have this huge kind of burst of like energy and um, use time travel in a way that she wasn't using it. She was just using it to say like, okay, now it's one o'clock again, and I'm going to this class. Like this is a lot. She's never had to say like oh, I don't let myself see myself, really. I mean, I'm sure she did a little bit, but she could know, like, oh, I'm in this class over here, and now I'm in this class over here, and now at this point, she has to do a lot of, like, maneuvers to make sure what's going on, and that's pretty huge. But even in going to classes, she would have still had to do a lot of thinking about how to plan her route to class to make sure that she didn't run into any of the same people both times. Mm. Um, There is even one time when... She's under a lot of strain and um, Harry and Hermione are talking to her and then suddenly they they turn to like say something else to her and she's at the bottom of the stairs and her bag has tons of books in them that they did that she didn't have before and it like splits. And they're like, wait, but you were just here and now you're there and also your your bag has tons of books in it. Mm-hmm. So it was like she she was under a lot of strain and I think it, you really start to understand in this chapter, when she explains all of the rules and how everything works, like you do understand what a huge burden that was for her to undertake this year and why her emotions were so frayed all the time. 
That's why I can't believe they allowed her to do it. I say again, she's 13. (laughs) It's really just not worth it. It doesn't seem good. And she realizes that too. The next chapter, I think she says like, yeah, I dropped a bunch of classes. I'm not going to do that again. That was really silly of me. So she understands that too. I also wonder a little bit because, I mean, we talked about the time turner is a risky thing to invent. And I kind of wonder if Rowling decided first that the ending would need time travel to be fixed or if she already had this situation going with Hermione's classes and then just decided to use it. I kind of wonder what came first so that, you know, maybe she wanted to do this time travel at the end to save Sirius and then had to come up with a reason for that to happen. So I'm not, I don't know, but it does seem like maybe one of those things was not fully planned out so that she then had to kind of stick them together and it, and it works, but, um, you know, it doesn't fully make sense again with, for both of those things to be happening. I also feel like that she maybe wanted Harry to experience watching these events that he can't change. And there's something Mm. in that. And, and I this is where I think the movie does a really good job because he's there. I remember like they're sitting in the woods or something and he's kind of narrating, Oh, this is where I'm going to go. This is Mm -hmm. what's happening. Okay. Now we wait. And I think that's realistic to what life is like, right? Some things happen. We can't control them and we have to sit by and just let it pass. And I think that that's part of his growth as a character and as a human. And I feel like part of that, she wanted him to experience that. Yeah, that's a great point. That's, that's a really, a good, really point. good point. I think to your uh, question, Maddie, about how it was written, my conception of Rowling's writing is that she starts with the mystery. And it's always about the mystery at the center of this story. So the mystery in this book is um, kind of two things. It's kind of about like who is really responsible for Harry's parents' deaths. And then the second thing is like now that we know who is guilty and who's innocent, like how are they going to be able to get justice? And I think justice really, I think we talked about this last chapter, but justice is really one of the main themes of this book. Um, And so they can't really bring Pettigrew to justice yet. So they settle for making sure that the innocent Sirius doesn't get punished for something that he didn't do. Um, So that's the other mystery. How can they, how can they get Sirius out of this predicament? Um, and then I think she probably wrote the the narrative around that and decided, you know, it would be cool for the second mystery is to have them time travel in order to rescue him. Yeah, um, I I also think we, off of what you said, Corey, that the kind of the more like metaphorical ideas for like why this was important and to have Harry watching what he can't control and then kind of ironically he does control some of it with the Patronus and so the quote of him saying like he knew he could do it because he'd already seen himself do it and I wanted to ask about that too and like what do you guys think about this kind of as a concept in the book with the time travel but also just as a theme of like how this this works in life or how this works in the series of you know if you could kind of visualize yourself doing something then you know you can do it and you have the confidence to do it i mean as a yoga teacher we talk a lot about like visual visualization 
and kind of that manifestation of your intentions or what you hope to be able to do. And I think there is a lot of power in that. Um, You Mm -hmm. see it like in sports too, Um, like sports psychologists, they help um, athletes visualize, like visualize seeing the ball, hitting the ball, getting a home run. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even in college and field hockey, we did visualizations where we talked about how plays could work. If you do this particular play, you can score the goal and like literally closing your eyes, seeing yourself doing what you want to do. And then you do get the confidence Mm -hmm. because it's all, it's all, it's all a mental game. If you don't believe that you can do it, you're not going to do it. But if you've seen yourself do it, you can do it. And so we talk, I mean, that's a concept that I think people should do more of, but that's exactly what he, what's happening to him right here. Yeah, when you're saying that too, I'm also thinking about the the piece of this that's um, the the original part where he thinks that it's his father that's doing these things, even though it's actually himself. It's not his dad. Um, it could also be related to the idea of like seeing either a parent or someone that is representative of you doing something, then you feel like you are able to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. you feel like you have an example. Um, of a somebody in your life. I mean, that's why it's important, like, for people to see people that look like them doing things in different jobs so that you can see, like, oh, this is actually an example that I have, whereas before I had to just imagine it out of nothing. And um, I think especially with the Patronus, because Harry's been trying so hard this whole year to do it, um, just seeing someone else do it that is actually him but seeing someone do it that's familiar um, kind of gets them over that hump to be able to do it. It's that, but I think there's more to it than that. So the Patronus, we know that it requires a lot of positive emotion, right? So, you know, you could say that he was inspired by seeing his father or what he thinks is his father. Um, But I think it actually is even a little bit more interesting than that. I think it's that... He knows that it happened because he saw it with his own eyes. So when he realizes that it was actually him that he saw casting that Patronus, he knows that it's possible for him to be able to do that. And he knows that he did do it. So that gave him, I don't even know if confidence is the right word because it's like, it's a fact that he saw. It's not even like, I believe in myself. It's like, I know that this happened, Mm -hmm. so I'm going to do it. So I don't even I don't even know if confidence is the right word for that, but it is, it is a similar kind of thing, right? It's that assuredness mm-hmm. that you you right. know well, that it's Right, well, confidence that he could do doable. it again. Right, he Absolutely. knows that he can do mm-hmm. it again if he's done it once. It's like with anything. So I think it's like a little confidence, but then yes, it is a fact too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like you say it's that you say he did it once so he can do it again, but he only ever did it once. Like this was one it. one time he watched himself do it, and the other time he did it. That's true. (laughs) But in his experience, like, it happened. He experienced it twice. He experienced Mm -hmm. it from both sides of it. And so he saw, he saw himself. And he also saw, you know, that I think being outside of the danger of the Dementors, and we can talk about kind of like, um, Dementors and depression and like those metaphors, but being outside of the, circle of Dementors and outside of the danger that he is more able to take control and um, stop that from happening. Whereas when he was in it, he was too affected to like have the energy and motivation and confidence to do it. 
on his own. Yeah, I mean, he did put up a fight, though, which is noteworthy, and we we did talk about that last chapter. When you were talking about perspectives, though, it gave me another idea, which I want to bring up, which is that if you look at this chapter from Dumbledore's perspective, he has a conversation with Harry and Hermione about time traveling. He gives them kind of vague instructions about what to do. He says the time, he says it's five minutes to midnight, I'm going to lock you in. He says three turns to do it. He closes the door. He goes to lock it. Harry and Hermione come running up the passageway and say, (laughs) we did it. Sirius Black is free. And he escaped on Buckbeak. And he says, all right, cool. Well, I think you guys have just left. So why don't you go back inside and I'll lock you in. (laughs) So he knows that it worked right away. I just think that's really cool. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. Just because of the way that the, you know, the time travel works. And there's one other thing in that scene um, that I think is noteworthy, which is um, Harry and Hermione talking to Fudge. Um, we we kind of glossed over this originally in our beginning discussion, but like I think it is really powerful that they tried their hardest in a very weak and very vulnerable state, like just regaining consciousness, to defend an innocent person so vehemently um, to what is essentially like the wizard president. Um, and he is so dismissive of them because he thinks that they were confunded or something. Um, it's really powerful. I think it shapes a lot about their attitudes toward the Ministry of Magic and Fudge in particular as like inept and weak um, because they think that he doesn't actually care about um, what's right or, or justice or about listening to people. Um, he cares about whatever is the most convenient truth to him in that moment. And certainly believing that Sirius Black is guilty is most convenient for him because as we later learn, um, Sirius Black was ordered to Azkaban without a trial. And Fudge wasn't Minister of Magic at the time, but he is now. And so he is responsible for that sentence being carried out. And if it turned out that Sirius Black was actually innocent, that's definitely the end of his career and presumably also the end of people like Barty Crouch Sr.'s career as well. Um, so he's kind of like, no, I'm not, I, don't, I don't buy that because if he did, then it would be the end of his career. And if we know anything about Fudge, he's a very ambitious, career-minded person. I think it's a really good portrait of Fudge, um, right? Because he clearly, like we saw it in previous chapters, he clearly doesn't want to be here um, to oversee Buckbeak's execution. He was like, well, I was just in the neighborhood. And then Ron's like, oh, but, but the Hippogriff might get off, so you might not have to witness an execution at all. And he's like, no, he's not going to get off. Uh, it's definitely going to be executed because that's how the, that's how things work. Um, and then when they try to explain Sirius is innocent, he's like, mm, no, he's not innocent. Sorry. Well, what I was thinking when you were saying all that was that it's kind of interesting that Snape is believed so readily by, you know, the, everyone at this mm-hmm. point. Um, I, I think that... Everyone except Dumbledore, thankfully. Everyone except Dumbledore, which is interesting, though, because I feel like usually everybody is, like, suspicious of Snape, and then Dumbledore ends up defending him and saying it's fine. It's an interesting reversal. But actually, like, you know, I think, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but in my mind, I feel like there's other times where, maybe not Fudge, but at least the other professors would be like, you know, we know Snape doesn't have a great past, and so why are we believing him when it comes to, like, telling how things are going with this story? And so... I think it's kind of a little bit surprising. Maybe it's just because, like you said, Fudge kind of has a motivation for wanting Sirius to be caught and wanting it to be over with. But um, it does seem like, why would we trust Snape? Like, we don't think that Snape is very trustworthy at this point. I think Dumbledore understands on some level that 
Snape has a blind spot where Sirius and, and Lupin are concerned. Um, and that he's mostly motivated by his very like emotional history with those people. And that it's not, um, that maybe like what he's saying is, is true for him, but he probably also isn't considering that there are other possibilities. I also think that from Fudge's perspective, out of the, what, six people that -hmm. were there, one's a werewolf, one is a (laughs) criminal, the other three are Uh 13-year-olds, so, well, Snape is telling the most logical story to me right now, so I believe Snape. Right. that, I just think that's how he works, he's not gonna go any deeper than that, he's not gonna ask questions, he's the only you know, like-minded person that was there. So whatever, whoever it was, it could have been anybody. I think he was going to believe them. Yeah, that's a, that's That's a a good point. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I was also thinking even besides who else is there, you know, Snape is telling the truth based on his knowledge. I mean, he's not, he doesn't know that they were confunded, but I think he genuinely believes that they were confunded at this point, or at least suspects that because he's like, he was knocked out. And then this is what happened. And so in his mind, like, Sirius is guilty. And so this is what must have happened. Like, he can't really think logically through this. So even though we know he's wrong and they should listen to them, you know, he's not in this moment necessarily trying to manipulate the story to get back at Sirius. He thinks that this is right. And keep in mind, like, Snape, at this point, we don't know that he was in love with Lily Potter, but um, that is his main motivation for wanting to get revenge on Sirius like Harry thinks that it's just the schoolboy grudge but it's so much more than that because he thinks that Sirius was responsible for Lily's death so that's really what his motivational factor is here and and that's why he gets so upset about it when Dumbledore appears not to believe him he's like you know he was capable of murder back in school like you don't think that he killed Lily and James um and that's why it's so emotional for him. I think I think it is important to kind of consider that framework because uh, you could be led like Harry is into believing that it's just a schoolboy grudge. So backing up again to um, casting the Patronus. So we talked about how this is such an iconic scene in the book and in the series. And, and the films. And the Great films, scene. for sure. Um, what this means to Harry and into all of this. And so Hermione, when she comes into this, she now realizes and knows that Harry not only broke the rules, but actually, you know, messed up in a way that she told him would be bad, is that he did see himself. And even though, like, it was okay because he thought it was his dad, I guess, it's still not good. And so he took this huge risk, and it ended up being what had to happen. Um, But I do think it's really interesting to have this be um, the kind of the example of like you have to break the rules really badly sometimes um in order to do what you need to do right and and we've been examining hermione's you know reaction to rule breaking throughout this series and in dramatic fashion i think this chapter is the one that changes it the most um if we look back to you know two books ago when they met hermione for the first time she was upset at them being out late she was upset about them breaking any insignificant rule, even if it was for the right reasons. Now she's literally breaking a man from prison on a stolen hippogriff that was also condemned. She's even like she's not really willing to break the rules of time travel, but when Harry does and it saves them, she realizes that that's okay to do. 
she's talking back to the minister of magic like this is a very very different hermione she's come to understand so much more about how justice and injustice play in this world and how it's not black and white that sometimes going against authority is the only way to get justice um and so she's really evolved a lot on this issue i don't know what do you think Corey? yeah so i think for the first time, Hermione is realizing that the stakes are so much higher here. And she realizes that sometimes the rules have to be broken in order to fight for what you believe in. Uh, we'll see more of this, I think, in the Goblet of Fire when she starts spew, right? And she's not necessarily breaking the rules, but she's fighting against this this norm, um, this, this treatment of house elves. And she really believes strongly that this isn't right. And so we'll see more of this and she'll break more rules like not just school rules but like I don't know like law legally she'll break some rules um because she knows that she needs to fight for what's right and she just won't stand for it and I think it's about her just growing up yeah absolutely so I want to talk about the elephant in the room which is um the cursed child We've mentioned before on the show that we uh, don't consider it canon. We don't really even consider it a Harry Potter book. Um, for one thing, it was written by different authors. And for another thing, the time travel in Cursed Child does not make any sense. Um, mm -hmm. Because of the way that time travel was already established as working in this chapter. So I wanted to look at a couple other like media examples of time travel and the way that they're portrayed there. Um, and then circle back, talk about this chapter again. And then compare it to the way it was portrayed in Cursed Child to explain in a roundabout way why that doesn't make any sense. So the first example I have here is Back to the Future. So in Back to the Future, um, people travel back in time and then they influence uh, present events when they're in the past. So the main character travels back in time um, and then he screws a whole bunch of things up. Like his parents almost don't end up together and he like starts fading away. So this is an example of the classic... Um, idea about time travel called the grandfather paradox which says that if you if you were a time traveler and you went back in time and you killed your grandfather before your parents were born then you'd create a paradox because you as the grandson never went back in time because you were never born so you never killed your grandfather so then your grandfather had kids so then you were born so then you went back in time and killed your grandfather and it becomes this never-ending paradox of of contradictions so what actually happened we don't know um, back to the Future just kind of ignores this. It just kind of, you know, he, he goes back in time, things change, and then he goes back to the present, and he's the same person, but things are different. It's just kind of vague. They don't really explain it. They don't really talk about it, but it doesn't actually make sense. So that's an example where the grandfather paradox comes into play. There's another example of a movie that I saw last year called Avengers Endgame. I don't know if you guys saw it, but it was this really small movie um, where... <laughs> Some of the characters travel back in time and they create a different timeline. So this kind of operates on multiverse theory, which is this theory that whenever you time travel, you you slip into an alternate universe where you time traveled. And and now there's two parallel timelines that um, in one of them you time traveled and one of them you didn't. So it's kind of um, related to the idea in quantum mechanics that actions are probabilistic. So when you do something in one timeline, it doesn't necessarily affect the other, but they're constantly branching paths that go off in, into the infinite multiverse, basically. So this can kind of work, but it comes it becomes very convoluted very quickly. You see in this in this story, like people do things like, okay, we're going to take the Infinity Stone out of this point in the timeline, and then we're going to return it at this point over here on a different timeline. 
Um, but it's not possible to travel within universes. So you kind of, you have the potential to screw people over in one universe or the other, depending on what your actions are. Um, from your perspective, everything's fine, but maybe the people in the other universe are having difficulties now. Um, so that can create difficulties just to try to understand it. Uh, and also for people in the theoretical other universes. And then the third example of a movie that I wanted to talk about is um, Groundhog Day, which is like the classic example of a time loop. So I just watched this again recently, and basically in, in Groundhog Day, he um, continuously wakes up on February 2nd. Every day he wakes up and it's February 2nd again, and, and no one remembers anything except for him. He can, some for some reason, remembers everything that he did the previous like February 2nd when he woke up and had a whole day. So then he goes through that day basically hundreds of times trying to like get everything perfect, everything to go his way. Um, and it's just kind of, it's a, it's a romantic story. It's kind of about love and, and his own relationship with people and, and how he's kind of um, not a very kind or a good person. And then he changes over the course of this sort of test of character. Um, and it doesn't really create paradoxes, but it's, it's just like, why would you remember everything but nobody else does? Like, if you're actually going back in time, um, are you the only one that's going back in time? And then, like, if so, why is there only one of you? So, I mean, it's not that big of a paradox, but I just wanted to use that as an example of other types of time travel. Um, and then let's talk about Cursed Child, because I want to open it up to you guys a little bit. Um, what I know it was probably a while ago that we read it, but uh, I blocked what, most of it out. Yeah. What, if anything, do you remember about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I do. But the only thing I remember from that that's different from the this time travel is that um, they go back in time and like change things. And then like it's a different timeline, basically. But it's like it's like, oh, if we went back in time and Cedric didn't die, then we would all become Death Eaters, basically. Or, like, I, yeah. you know, I have honestly no memory, but it's something like that where it, things do change. And as we talked about, that's not it how follows it's established. Like a, yeah, it follows, like, a Back to the Future-esque model um, where you change things in the past and it changes the present, right? So, you know, you go back in time, and instead of letting Cedric die at the end of the third task, what if you humiliate him so badly that he doesn't get to that point in the maze? Um, well, then it turns out that he becomes a Death Eater, um, which, okay, that doesn't make any sense at all. But also, it's not possible to do. Because, as we established in this chapter, you can't go back in time and change things. Like, the ink is dry, as it were. Like, you can't actually affect things that happened in the past. All you can do is accomplish the things that are already known to have happened. So, if you want to time travel and make sure that Cedric Diggory gets there, then you can do that. Um, but only if you you do it without interfering with the events that actually did occur. It's kind of like, and I wrote this down in my notes, it's kind of like in That's So Raven. You know, she starts out every episode by having these visions of the future, these premonitions, right? Um, and, and then she spends the whole episode trying to avoid that thing happening. And in doing so, everything that she does ends up causing that thing to happen. So that kind of time travel is acceptable, you can time travel and then cause the things that happen to happen, um, but you can't cause different things to happen. Does that make what sense? What a show that shaped my childhood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a great show. So good. And as we said, like, that's why Hermione can't go back and do that cheering charms lesson again. 
because um, she slept through it and they noticed that she wasn't there. So she can't go and correct that because it, it already happened. And it, it's why it's so critical that Harry and Hermione aren't seen by anybody um, because they weren't seen by anybody. We already like read through that narrative um, when we read those chapters originally. So, you know, because because Harry in the chapter Cat, Rat and Dog never mentions seeing a figure that looks just like him in the trees. That means that he didn't see that so that Harry wasn't there. So he couldn't go back and then suddenly appear on the field running towards <laughs> him. You know, it's not possible to do. Well, yeah, this does kind of like hurt my brain to think about, but um, <laughs> it's a I, lot. But I, this is that's why this is such a great chapter, because it all does make sense. Um, it, it is hard and, and time travel is always hard to understand. Um, but at least this time travel doesn't actually run into any paradoxes that will break your brain. Everything is consistent. Yeah, this is probably the best. This is probably the best one. Um, besides my other favorite, which is the Magic Treehouse books, when they <laughs> go back in time and then no time passes in the present. It's like it never happened. And I like that. Right. I did love those books. <laughs> I do want to mention one last thing. And this is the last thing I'll say about the movie as well. But mm -hmm. there's this scene where they've just left Hagrid's hut and they're hiding behind the pumpkin patch. And Hermione turns around and we know that she's seen herself or I guess when we're watching it the first time, we don't know what she's seen. But, you know, she says, I thought I just saw. Never mind. And it's this really great tease. Um, I think it's just to help the viewer, but I just always really liked this moment in the film. So I thought I would mention it. I really liked that moment too, from like a filmmaking perspective, because it, it's, it's foreshadowing of, of the time travel aspect of it. Um, I'm not sure if it makes sense. I think because it, Hermione, Hermione would not. know immediately that that's herself that she saw. Well, she might, but also I think, I mean, I think about that obviously <laughs> this is not a real situation to think about but i feel like if we were in this moment like obviously if you like saw yourself straight on or if you saw some some part of yourself that was like so distinctive that you knew it had to be you but i kind of wonder like if i saw you know myself and someone else that i knew like afar in the forest and I, and then they like hid behind a tree and i didn't really see them i might be like oh, that's just, like, someone that kind of looks like me or that kind of looks like my friend. And because I feel like I see people a lot where I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this person or even where I'm like, that kind of looks like me or, like, certain parts right. of it. And so I think it, it could be feasible that, like, you could glance a part of yourself quickly as long and then not know. But, yeah, that's a really cool part in the movie for sure. Yeah, and the reason why it could make sense in that moment is because – when the timeline comes back around and Hermione's on the other side of that, it does happen again in the exact same way. So she hasn't affected anything. She hasn't changed anything about the way that that scene played out. So a scene that happens um, right before they come back to the present is that they um, rescue Sirius and they have a moment on the tower um, where they're saying goodbye and Sirius is about to go off on Buckbeak. Um, and it's a very meaningful moment because Sirius tells Harry that he's truly James's son after he knows what they've experienced. Um, and last chapter, Corey, we talked a little bit about how um, Harry is trying to kind of create or um, 
emphasize certain parts of his dad's legacy because he doesn't really know his dad. And he's heard kind of, like, mixed reviews. You know, he's heard some things that are um, good and then some things that are not that great. And so I think he's always trying to give him a good legacy. And um, especially once he knows that Sirius was so close to him. So I think it's interesting that and really important that Sirius tells Harry he's truly James's son in this moment when he's done something really heroic and really um, just really a kind of unequivocally good a good guy thing yeah and this is another example of of um harry you know learning about his father and um it's another i think you know he really needs this kind of reinforcement that his father was a good person from people and he does get it occasionally from people like hagrid and then in this book from lupin um but getting it from sirius i think right here is meaningful because Harry now understands what Sirius has been through too. Um, you know, 12 years in Azkaban suffering because everybody thought that he was responsible for his best friend's death. Um, and that he had actually been faithful as a friend that whole time. Um, and that he had spent it, you know, wanting to, to bring justice to the person who actually killed them. Um, Harry, I think feels like a really strong bond to Sirius. Now they're both kind of outcasts. They're both without family, um, and and people think of them as something that they're that they don't feel like themselves. You know, people think of Harry as a hero; he doesn't feel like a hero in himself. People think of Sirius as a criminal and a betrayer, and obviously he doesn't think of that um, for himself either. Um, and then we see Sirius ask about Ron's health. I think this is a great moment too because um, Sirius accidentally broke Ron's leg, right um, outside the Whomping Willow, and. I think he feels really badly about it. So he's just like, hey, is Ron okay? I notice that he's not with you guys. And they're like, yeah, 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 he's fine. <laughs> I also really love this moment. I think that throughout the whole book, we've kind of seen Sirius portrayed as a villain, right? He comes in, he tears the dorm apart. He right. looks kind of dangerous. Um, and we do know that he kind of did anything and would do anything to get to Pettigrew. So we've really only seen this kind of vicious side. And so now we're starting to see the softer side. And I think that him asking about Ron is just showing that he's actually a compassionate person. And this is kind of where you start right, to right. absolutely fall in love with him as a character. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't had anyone give him any like kindness this whole forever for this whole time. And, he has not even given himself kindness, clearly, and has been, like, living basically as an animal for this whole year. And so, you know, we talked, and we talked last chapter about him inviting Harry to come live with him and how meaningful that is. And now he's finally, like, starting to accept, like, oh, somebody cared enough to to save me and I'm, I could actually have a future um, that is better than I thought. Although, as we also talked about last chapter, it's kind of tragic and sad that they will never really get to live together in the way that they wanted. I think that the end of this chapter is really interesting. Um, you know, we've talked about before in previous episodes, the way that this book ends is, is very different than the way that the first two books end, um, where things still feel unresolved at the end of this book. You know, um, Pettigrew has escaped and we don't know what's going to happen with him, but we think it's something bad because of that prophecy from Trelawney. Um, 
you know, Sirius has escaped punishment, but now he's on the run and we don't know what's going to happen with him either. Um, it's not as lighthearted as the end of either of the first two books mm-hmm. where, you know, things are back to normal now and or some semblancy of normal. Um, but but here it's it's a lot more gray. And that ends up being the way that the books are going to end from now on is there was some real tragedy at the end of every book from now on. Um, and and that the characters have to kind of learn to move past it or to accept it. Um, and, and here it, it's kind of like there's a new normal that they have to enter into. And I think Harry is feeling very optimistic about that, but even that is tempered by his experiences in this chapter. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. Always great to see you and, and talk to you about your favorite book and favorite chapter. Um, thank hope, you. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, do you want to say a few words? Thanks, guys. It's always so fun to be with you and talk about Harry Potter. I just wanted to say one fun little tidbit. So David and I actually sang together in college, and I still sing now. And I'm in a semi-professional group, and this past spring we actually did harry potter and the prisoner of azkaban in concert oh and i got to sing because there's a chorus part yeah um like double double toil and trouble and some other things that's Um, so cool patronus so yeah that was so fun um and it was really cool oh that's really awesome i remember seeing advertisements for that event and i didn't get to go but you were there you were singing i was there i was singing Oh my God, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really great. So hopefully we'll be able to do the fourth book soon. But anyways, thank you guys <laughs> so much as always. Um, sure, yeah. So I own a yoga studio in Providence, Rhode Island. If anybody is curious, very cool. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Ritual Sweat Society PVD. And um, thanks a lot, guys. So much fun. Yay! Awesome. Thanks so much, Corey. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and Hermione's Secret. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, especially the way that time travel is used in this book, please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we fly into Chapter 22, Owl Post Again. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.